This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Violence is as American as apple pie. I want to talk about some of the reviews I've written on my blog, genelance.org. There's about 150, 200 reviews there. I'll begin with a book by Chad Pearson, who lives here in North Texas. His book is called Capitals, Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long 19th Century. University of North Carolina Press, 2022. He just makes the point that all this violence that took place in the 19th century, all of the workers that got killed, all the workers that got imprisoned, all the workers that got beat up, horsewhipped, driven out of town, tarred and feathered, thrown into concentration camps, that that was all led and directed by the bosses. Another good book I reviewed, and this is a piece of fiction, but it was based on things that were happening back in 1933. It's, the book is called In Dubious Battle, and there was a movie made of it, which I saw just recently on streaming software on Prime Video. It was directed by James Franco in 2017. This is about some people who tried to organize farm workers in California in 1933. They faced, let's see, one of them got shot and killed. Several of them got arrested. Yeah, they were, there was a lot of violence and bad things that happened to the people that were trying to organize the workers in the apple orchard in California. That's a very good little book by John Steinbeck. It's not as good, of course, as his great works of Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath, but it's about the same people, farm workers, needed to organize. The book I just finished is called The Shame of America, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and America's Great Crisis by Adam Hochschild, printed by Mariner Books in 2022. I found a free copy through my public library and I read it on Kindle, but now I kind of wish I had a hard copy because there are so many facts in it. It's about what's called the Red Scare from around 1917 to around 1924. I always say that the Red Scare started with the lynching of Frank Little in Butte, Montana on August the 1st, 1917. The reason that they lynched Frank Little is because he was the most outspoken critic of the idea of going into World War I. He had written a piece and it was printed in the Industrial Worker, which was a newspaper from the Industrial Workers of the World. And he said very flatly that we should not be fighting for the bosses in World War I. And that it was nothing but a big battle over turf by gangsters. And uh, he made a lot of sense. I think he made so much sense that nobody could debate him on it Instead, they tied him to the back of a car and dragged him up and down the streets of Butte, then took him to a railroad trestle, 
shot him full of holes and hanged him. Or they might have hanged him first and then shot him full of holes, nobody knows. That was the beginning of it. And I was very pleased to see that this book, uh, American Midnight, begins in Oklahoma. And I think that's very proper. It should have begun in Oklahoma. Because in Oklahoma, we had very strong industrial workers of the world. Frank Little was from Oklahoma. His brother, Alonzo Little, was trying to organize the oil field workers in Oklahoma. And the farm workers in Oklahoma were organized by the industrial workers of the world way up into the 1930s. And I should say that they were organized successfully way up into the 1930s by the industrial workers of the world. So that was one reason why this book should have started in Oklahoma. The other reason was the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party had its best state was Oklahoma. So you may have heard of Oscar Amaringer, who was an organizer in Oklahoma and also something of a humorist. So they had a fine Socialist Party in the state of Oklahoma. So it is, makes sense that the repression that began in 1917 as America entered the war should begin in Oklahoma. It ends, it starts off with people being tarred and feathered and run out of town. I should mention that other people were shot to death and that nobody ever went to jail for it. Now, the way I had understood the Red Scare that started in 1917 was that the Oklahoma legislature empowered a bunch of vigilantes and then just went out of business and did not pay any attention to what happened after that so that vigilantes ran the state all the way through the war. And I had just thought that that was government's attitude, that they were just letting the vigilantes run amok. And that, of course, is true. But this book makes something else very clear. The vigilantes were not just acting on their own. They were led by the government. Led by the government. Especially by the Attorney General's office, the Justice Department. Started in 1917. Thousands of people jailed. Thousands of people deported. Thousands of people horsewhipped. Hundreds of people killed. Hundreds of people thrown into federal prison. And some of it, I think, might you might say has been left out. I'll bring that up in a minute. They were arresting, assaulting, and lynching just about anybody during that war. If they even said that we should start thinking about this and be a little more careful and not just go jumping into that war. Looking back, people have said, that the socialists were right and that America should have stayed out of that war and that that war should never have been allowed to happen because all it was was a redivision of the colonial territories of the world between the major colonialist powers, particularly France, Germany, and England. And when the war was over, they took away pretty much all of Germany's colonies and actually parts of Germany, and gave them to the victors, which were the French and the English. The war probably should never have happened. 
And that was the attitude of, of a handful of pacifists, a few union people, not the AFL. The AFL got the heck out of that argument. They did not. They did not take position against the war. And actually, the industrial workers of the world didn't take a position against the war either. Frank Little tried to get them to, but they wouldn't do it. The executive board overruled him. And all they said was that if people were supposed to sign up for the draft, they should go ahead and sign up for it and just put a little note in the margins uh, that I don't approve of this war and I'm a member of the IWW. I don't know if anybody ever even did that, but they did not officially oppose the war. But who did officially oppose the war was the Socialist Party of the United States. Now, we think of today the Socialist Party as just a small group of college students. But back in those days, they had mayors elected, they had city councilmen elected, they had a couple of people elected to Congress, United States Congress, and they had over a million people voted for Eugene Victor Debs in 1919, even though he was in prison at the time. So there were a lot of socialists, and that's who they went after. A few pacifists, a few trade unionists, for specifically anybody associated with the industrial workers of the world, or anybody who knew Frank Little, and all of the socialists. The worst assaults were called the Palmer Raids after Attorney General Palmer. After them, I think the worst villains were the armed forces, but many government offices were in on it, including the post office. J. Edgar Hoover, who was a notorious race baiter and union hater and all-around sociopath, made his chops in this period. And as you know, we got stuck with J. Edgar Hoover for another 50 years or so. He became famous and uh, gained power, especially during World War I and afterwards, and then went on all the way up into the 1960s when he was spying on Martin Luther King. Near the end of the book, the author, Hochschild, tries to tote up the number of people killed horsewhipped, imprisoned, deported, or otherwise deprived of their life and liberty. But he says it's a hopeless task. There were just too many of them, and so much of it was not even reported. Besides, he's only talking about the federal cases. All the nasty, horrible things that's happened at state and local levels probably would have doubled or tripled the size of the book. And then... There's the non-government participation of anti-union bosses and a few ideologically driven racists and nativists who acted on their own. A few of them acted on their own. But all the spies and the intelligence and the major direction for the whole thing came directly from the government. The rationale for the horrors began when Woodrow Wilson, who was famous for keeping us out of war, when Woodrow Wilson was re-elected in 1916 and started getting ready to go into the war. A lot of Americans, including the growing Socialist Party and members of the work, industrial workers of the world, strongly opposed that war, and the repression was originally released against anybody who did not want to join the bloodfest. But why, you may ask, 
did it continue after the end of the war and well into the 1920s. It's interesting that Warren G. Harding, who became president, I believe, in 1920, he was asked about World War I, and he said Eugene Debs was probably right. We shouldn't have gone into that war. He was president of the United States when he said that. The excuse for dragging it out and continuing up until well into 1924, the excuse was Bolshevism. Because during the war in 1917, the Russians got out and made a deal with the Germans and got out of the war. So they were the Bolsheviks. They scared the capitalists half to death, and that caused the repression in America to go right on, particularly against the socialists. As I mentioned, there were some things that I would like to have seen in this account that were not there. The Green Corn Rebellion was the first one. The Green Corn Rebellion took place in southeastern Oklahoma, where I'm from, and it was a bunch of sharecroppers who took up arms and they were planning to march on Washington and overthrow the government so that they would not be in World War I. They called it green corn because they were going to eat fresh corn, which they were going to roast. Most of us call it roasting ears nowadays, but back then they called it green corn. And they shot it, actually did shoot a steer and the barbecuing. They were going to barbecue steers and have green corn and walk all the way to Washington, D.C. They had gotten the impression from somebody that other people were going to be doing this too. Well, the good thing about the Green Corn Rebellion was it brought people together. They were all sharecroppers. The whole state of Oklahoma was just covered with sharecroppers at that time. Whites, blacks, and natives joined together in the Green Corn Rebellion, and I believe more than 400 of them were arrested and they filled the jails of Oklahoma and the surrounding states and did not get out of jail until, I believe, 1923. I also would have appreciated an attempt to go beyond tallying the assaults, deportations, imprisonments, and murderers, and try to find out how many workers lost their jobs during this awful period. This didn't even come up in the book by Hosh Child. But actually, it's the thing I think that everybody fears. And it's the most widely used form of repression that the government uses. And consequently, it's the most effective. So they could have tried to ascertain how many people were deprived of their right to earn a living. They didn't, but it would have been good if they had. Hoschild clearly condemns certain government officials. He leaves the final judgment of President Wilson open to debate, but I don't. Wilson could have stopped this with a, with a signature, but he didn't. He let the, the Palmer raids and the Red Scare go on for years, and he just looked the other way. Well, Hoschild leaves it open about Woodrow Wilson, and he gives some credit to what he considers the good guys, which would include the anarchist Emma Goldman, the socialist Kate Richards, O'Hare, and of course, Eugene Victor Debs, the most important spokesperson for the Socialist Party. He does mention Frank Little in a good way, and he was, of course, 
one of the first anti-war spokespersons lynched. But he doesn't mention William Z. Foster. William Z. Foster was an organizer in the labor movement. He had one foot in the industrial workers of the world and the other foot in the American Federation of Labor. And he was trying to bring the labor movement together in the whole period and try to bring them together and develop the fighting potential of the labor movement. But William Z. Foster is almost never mentioned in any American history. And in this book, he's still not mentioned. So I'd like, to, I'd like it if that had been in there. I have always found it interesting to speculate what might have happened in America if different leaders had headed the Socialist Party or maybe the Industrial Workers of the World or the AFL, the labor movement, but especially the Socialist Party. There were Socialist Parties all over the world before World War I, and they all capitulated to the capitalists and supported their nation in the war with two exceptions. The American Socialist Party did not endorse the war and they did not fight it effectively. The other nation where the Socialist Party decided that they did not want to support the war and did fight it effectively was the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.